Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Sydney, you've cleared up a lot of um, medical misconceptions for me over the years, but I don't think any are as, were as stunning as when we're watching a commercial for aspirin and you looked at me and said, you know, you shouldn't take aspirin for a headache. Because, like, for me growing up, that... I thought that that's what everybody did. Like, aspirin for a headache is like a thing. Well, I'm not... It's like a major thing. Let me clarify. I'm not saying an aspirin can't work for your headache. I'm saying that there are other over-the-counter pain relievers that may be a better choice Mm -hmm. for your headache. And there are a lot of reasons why someone may not be able to or why it might not be advisable for them to just take aspirin whenever they need to for a headache. I I rarely recommend to people to just take an aspirin whenever they feel like it for aches and pains or headaches or anything like that. Let's also double back and double clarify that until that exact moment, I thought aspirin and Tylenol were the same thing. So And they are Definitely not. So they're definitely not. So why don't you educate me about what aspirin actually is? Sure. So first of all, you aren't the first person to want to know about aspirin. Good. No. So thank you to uh, Mary and Raina and Jen and Matthew and Mark, who have all suggested this topic. So aspirin is probably older than you know about. It's been around a long time. Really? Yeah. So the... The name, the chemical name for aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid. You can imagine that never really caught on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody tends to call it that, like in the store. You don't go and ask for an acetyl salicylic acid, please. It's a mild analgesic, meaning it is a that's a pain reliever. Works on pain, mm-hmm. but it's mild. It's not it's certainly nowhere among the strongest of our pain relieving medications. And I like I said, I don't know that it would be my first over the counter choice for most pain, depending on the patient. Um, it relieves pain by blocking the production of substances called prostaglandins. So this this happens through something called cyclooxygenase, which is an enzyme and it inhibits it and then you don't get these prostaglandins. And then the result of that is that your nerve endings aren't as sensitive to pain because the prostaglandins sensitize them and so this desensitizes it and Okay. There you go. Less pain. That's just it. how aspirin works in case anybody is really fascinated with how and aspirin able, works. Like literally able to it, process the information you just departed. It, well, sometimes you'll hear things thrown around like in commercials about things like COX-1 inhibitors and COX-2 inhibitors. And you cannot giggle when I say Sorry, that. Sorry. Go ahead. 
<laughs> you please be professional. Sorry, Dr. McElroy. Please continue your dissertation. But that's where this comes from, is the inhibition of this enzyme, and then it blocks the prostaglandins. And then this also will later lead to our discovery that aspirin can do other things other than help with mild headaches. So we have found evidence that early man chew was would chew on things that contained salicylic acid like natural where this is like naturally occurring in in the world salicylic acid is naturally found in a variety of plants okay so let me start with that uh the most common thing i'm going to talk about is willow bark Mm. so willow bark contains salicylic acid any kind of herbal remedy that is suggesting willow bark is probably suggesting it because of the presence of salicylic acid. See, you always are so down on natural remedies, but this seems like apparently the table's been turned. On you, I, I am not down on natural remedies. I like the fact that aspirin has many, many studies to support its use. Fair enough. I am right. also not advising anyone to chew on willow bark. Uh, it's hard to control dosage, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, exactly. And there's like a lot of other stuff in willow bark that isn't salicylic acid. Like bark things. <laughs> like wood <laughs> like, stuff. Like the wood stuff. You know there's wood parts in there. <laughs> so it, it it contains, so like there's some evidence that early man knew that didn't know about salicylic acid, but knew, you know, I don't feel good. I chewed on this willow bark. I feel better. Hooray. I did it. Great. Good, good job. And they mushed it with their little hands into pills and <laughs> sold it to other cavemen. No, not yet. Not okay. yet. We're not there yet. So uh, there is, and this is, this is kind of widespread. There are ancient Sumerian writings, uh, the Ebers papyrus from Egypt, who that all reference the use of plants that specifically contain salicylic acid. Uh, like I said, most commonly uh, willow bark is mentioned, but it depends on where in the world you are as to what was available. Mm-hmm. Um, meadow sweet is another common one, but I mean, it's in uh, jasmine, beans, peas, clover. There's lots of different plants that different ancient peoples would have had access to that contained salicylic acid. So are you telling me if I eat enough peas, it'll cure a headache? I, no, I don't want to say that. It would depend on, I'd have to know the exact amount of salicylic acid per pea, piece. and then every <laughs> every plant that contains it, you got to wonder about its bioavailability, like how much of it can you absorb based on how it is. Okay, 2,000 peas. Compa- so, I mean, if you want to eat 2,000 peas, I'm not going to stop you. You would stop me. That's a, that's <laughs> incorrect. You would stop me from I would stop you from eating 2,000 peas. Peas are very small, to be fair. So you're saying maybe I could eat 2,000 <laughs> peas? Is that your I'm saying that I've never number? considered I've never considered measuring peas by the individual unit as to like you how many. Knows. If you think about it, you, you would say like I had two chicken tenders and 58 peas. <laughs> talks that way. See, and that doesn't sound like very many. You say 58 peas, and yeah, I think yeah, that's I probably a very peas. small yeah. amount of peas. I don't I know. Peas. <laughs> I've never considered the, the amount of peas. Size that way. Uh, about 70 peas. <laughs> That would make it very hard to calculate calorie content. So, uh, so in all of these mentions of the use of these salicylate, salicylic acid, salicylate, I'm using these words interchangeably, containing uh, plants, it's usually used for pain or for fevers. That's usually how it's referenced as, as being, you know, employed as a medicine. Um, Ancient Chinese medicine also advised willow bark specifically for a variety of illnesses, like I said, pain and fevers, also things like rheumatic fever specifically, a goiter they recommended willow bark for, uh, colds, probably because of the aches and pains and fevers and all those things that came with it, and even bleeding, which was probably a bad idea. 
because as we're going to talk about, aspirin does to some extent thin your blood. So uh, okay. So using aspirin for bleeding bad is not a good idea. Okay. But all those other things, well, I don't know about goiter either. But anyway, I could see where they got some of these ideas because it there probably was some response from the willow bark. Hippocrates advised powdered willow bark for headaches um, and also for minor aches and pains and fevers and the same kind of thing everybody had been using it for. In addition, he specifically had a recipe for a kind of tea made of willow bark that he recommended you give to women during labor to help with labor pains. So if somebody is having a baby, you can give that person some willow bark tea. We'll just call anything tea, won't we? Just boiled leaves. Boiled leaves, right? That's it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like daffodil tea, is that just hot water and daffodils? On that, on that 50s menu that we saw at that Kosai place today, mm-hmm. we, um, the boiled leaves is, was the like 50s slang for tea. Like, why do they need to say tea? Like, why in, like so if you time? want, if the you diner want. Diner slang, you mean? Yeah, diner slang. If you mm-hmm. want, if you want black coffee with sugar, you say, I want a brunette with sand. Okay. And if you want tea, just say, I would like some boiled leaves, which would make you not want tea. I think I would change my order if somebody said, oh, you want boiled leaves? I'd go, no. No, gross. You're right. That's gross. So it's well known throughout the Roman world that by then that you should use willow bark for things and and anything with salicylates in them. Pliny wrote of the use, Pliny the Elder wrote of the use of willow extensively in natural history, including chapter 37, which is called The Willow, 14 Remedies. Mm. So at least 14 remedies. Perfect. Each one of these is different in terms of what you add to it. So willow plus um, alcohol, for instance, is great for uh, killing your libido. Okay. So if you need to do that, if you want to lessen your sex drive, willow bark, alcohol, no sex drive. But the willow bark, wouldn't that, if it sped up your blood flow, wouldn't that be counter? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't speed up your blood flow. It thins out the blood. It prevent. Oh, it stops the okay. kind of clotting ability. Right. All right. I'm with you. So not completely, but it stops parts of the clotting ability. Okay. Uh, it, he also recommended it again. Like I said, anything that he, that, like bleeding is a bad idea. And he did recommend it for mouth bleeding specifically. Ooh. It's probably not a good plan. Corns, calluses, acne blindness uh he thought it was good for a, a diuretic if you have an abscess it's not if like you, they were just so stoked to find one that did do something it did like, something we, we know this does something let's try it for everything it, and you see this you it's very common if they found you know if you found some sort of herbal substance that uh worked as a laxative it would be used for everything if you found something that made you vomit those were always very popular see, something that made you pee was very popular it, it results you could see or feel or actually like tangible results were very popular. Plenty's taking me off right now because he's perverting one of our mainstays of cure alls, cure nothing. He's turning this thing that does cure something into a cure all. That's he, true. He's perverting our our, uh, our Although, slogan. There. You you could make the argument that it's not aspirin doesn't cure a lot of things. Okay, but I mean, if you um, have a all right, it, that's debatable. I mean, I mean, I guess if you have a headache and you take an aspirin and it goes away, we have cured the headache. But if you have a fever because you've got the flu and you take an aspirin and your fever goes away, you didn't cure your flu. Okay. Yes. So fair. Uh, ear diseases, gout, affections of the sinews, mm, whatever that would whatever mean, as a depilatory. I don't know how aspirin would remove hair, but there you go. 
um, any of these things. And then, by the way, that recipe of alcohol plus aspirin or plus willow bark equals no sex drive. If you do that daily, it will go away forever, according to Plenty the Elder. A lot of free time. So watch that concoction unless you want that. Unless that's your intended effect, then that's totally fine. But otherwise, be careful. Uh, For the next few centuries, people that's like willow bark had become part of like the common pharmacopoeia at this point. It was an accepted, handed down, you know, through oral histories and folk medicine and various cultures that this is something we use. It's active. It works, you know, but nobody was like studying it to see you know, why does willow bark do something? Yeah. There are a couple exceptions to this. In 1763, Reverend Edward Stone in London wanted to study the use of willow bark for malaria. He was looking for something that might work like quinine we knew did mm-hmm. because of the mm-hmm. Peruvian cinchona bark, which we had already realized right. was active against malaria. So he was looking for something like that that would be easier and cheaper and closer to home. The prices on that bark went buck wild after exactly. malaria. Exactly. Come by. You, you're exactly right. It was hard to get. And so this was kind of a search for something else. He was actually guided by the doctrine of signatures, which we've talked about before. Uh, where... Is that like like cures like? Exactly. Like cures like, which means he looked for something uh, not that looked like malaria because you can't find something that looks like malaria. But they knew that malaria kind of came from like murky um, still waters, you know, because that's where the mosquitoes would lay their egg rafts and that's where the mosquitoes lived and so he was looking for something so, that grew in that same environment so he looked in that same environment okay. and looked for something to grow that grew there and he found the willow bark and he tasted the willow he chewed on it and he noted that it was bitter much like the peruvian bark was perfect and so he thought you know what maybe this will work too it was noted that it didn't work as well as the cinchona bark which made sense because that contains quinine and this just contains salicylic acid uh but it did seem to work because the fever would go away so but like he was just <laughs> discovering that aspirin already did that right like we already knew that we one. already knew that yeah we, we kind of already knew that he but was probably still pretty proud of himself well yeah and for a lot of people suffering from malaria it was at least something that brought them some relief mm-hmm. would temporarily break the fever um and i'm you know like we've talked about before it's not like malaria is uniformly fatal so if you feel better and then you do get better, you would Perfect. probably think it cured you, yeah. even though it, it didn't have the quinine in it. Um, there's also some studies in the 1800s where Thomas McLaughlin studied it for rheumatism. But there really isn't a lot of people or there really aren't a lot of people who are sitting down and saying, this is willow bark. It works for something. Why the heck does this happen? Until 1828, when Johann Buckner, a pharmacy professor in Munich, isolates salicin salicylic acid the active ingredient in willow bark and says this is the thing this compound it. this no is what we're eating bark everyone good no. news you don't have to chew the bark i have i have narrowed it down to this exact powder liquid whatever substance this yeah. substance and this is what it is uh there were two italian chemists who had kind of beat him to it a couple years before but it was uh an impure form and it wasn't what the future work that we now know as aspirin was built upon. Um, in 1838, there was an Italian chemist, Raphael Piria, who was able to create 
from salicin, the acid form of that salicylic acid. And that was something that could be stabilized and used for pain relief. And, and different that, compounds are either stable or exist in different forms. The salicylic acid form was something that you could have a powder of and take. Okay. I don't, I don't quite understand. So like was salicylic acid in willow bark? Salicylic acid is in the willow bark, but it, it, it's in the, it's in the first compound of salicin. Okay. And you have to, to use you use chemistry to turn it into salicylic acid. Good enough for me. Thank you. Does that work? Yeah, sure. Okay. We'll just, we'll stick with that without getting into how you, how you do that. Okay. I think, I don't think that would be as interesting for everyone, maybe. All right. Uh, Tweet at Sydney. She'll lay it out for you. <laughs> However, it was really hard on the stomach in that form they found. If you took pure salicylic acid and ate it. That was that would like give you nausea and belly cramps and maybe some bleeding ulcers. So you need some fillers in there. That they, they didn't have a gel coating. That's the problem. <laughs> they needed a gel cap coating. No, well, the, a little more than that. A little more than that. This, this pure acid form is really hard on the stomach. They need to do something that that can help soften that. So in 1858, a French chemist, Charles Gerhardt, buffered the acid. If you've ever thought of of like buffering, if you've ever heard these terms about buffered aspirin. Mm-hmm. That's what they're, oh, they buffer. buffered it. Okay. They buffered the acid, the salicylic acid with sodium and made acetyl salicylic acid, which will become aspirin. But he kind of lost interest in it. So he just made this. He made this like amazing discovery. Here is the formula for acetyl salicylic acid, this amazing thing. And then like nothing came of it. And then the formula was rediscovered in 1899 by Felix Hoffman, who under the direction of Arthur... Eichengrun, they were working for Bayer, mm-hmm. a German company called Bayer. You may recognize Bayer, Bayer as an aspirin, Bayer aspirin. Anyway, they were, they were working for Bayer. They're looking for a way to take salicylic acid and turn it into something that is buffered that everybody can take. That'll be gentler on the stomach. And they probably just rediscover this old formula and go, hey, perfect. This will work. So they reproduce it and they've got aspirin and they convinced the people who ran bear, like, you've got to make this. This is going to be huge. Uh, he actually tested it out. Hoffman tested it out on his dad because his dad had terrible arthritis and his dad was like, this is gangbusters. I you, just, you win. I'm sorry. I'm still hung up on Charles Gerhardt who did this. And he made this discovery. And then at the end, he was like, I cool. Anyway, well, I did that. I got to get it back upstairs. It's time for dinner. <laughs> I don't know if he didn't recognize the significance, maybe, of what he'd done. Well, or... we know about it, though, right? So, like, he had to have told somebody. I don't, I don't, yeah. That is why. Anyway, so Bear got to make it because yeah. they got it now. Good they have for, the formula. Good for them. And what did they, how did that go? And so, in fe- on February 7th, 1900, aspirin is patented. And so acetyl salicylic acid is now become aspirin. And you're probably wondering, why did they call it that? Why did they call it that? Well, and I'm going to tell you why they called it that. But first, we got to go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals 
right to your door and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high quality chef crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I'm eating filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, And the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. All right, Sid, you are going to delight me with the reason that aspirin is called aspirin and not acetylsalicylic acid. Well, for one thing, that would be really hard to market. Anti. Yeah. Uh, nobody's going to remember that. Never. So they obviously, the, and this is common with medications, they come up with brand names that are easier to remember and say. And Zolestrin. I don't know what that is. I That's just made not, that one up. Yeah. That you can have that one for free drug companies. Big drug. <laughs> Some of them sound like, I think, what they're supposed to do. Like, you think of, like, Sonata, which is a sleep medication. Doesn't yeah. it sound like? It sounds like a, it's like a sleepy. It's a, it sounds sleepy. Anyway, the way they came up with this, uh, the A is for acetyl. Okay. So there you go. The S-P-I-R, the spear, Esper, spur, comes from uh, a, the plant that they specifically derived this salicylic acid from. So they didn't actually make the original aspirin from willow bark. Mm-hmm. They made it from the meadowsweet I mentioned earlier, which the scientific name is uh, Spiray ulmeria. And so that's just where they got the salicylic acid from. So anyway, so A and SPIR for that. The IN is just a, uh, it was a popular suffix 
that they stuck on medications at the time. People used in. A lot of things ended with I-N. And so A, S-P-I-R, they stuck the I-N on so there like and they see, got um, aspirin. I-X a lot on medicines mm-hmm. these days, right? Sometimes, yeah, I guess you can see that, yeah. Chantix and there's probably other ones. I don't know. I, I Well, it's like, well, but, well, butrin, that's an mm-hmm. I-N. That's true. The I-N is just a popular thing to stick on the end of a medication. Sometimes if you actually look at like the... Uh, chemical name like this the the compound name of some medications it the end will tell you what kind of medicine it is mm. for instance like there are a lot of cholesterol medicines that end with statin because that's the class they're in the oh. statin class and oh. it tells you that it's that medicine that. uh aspirin was just they just thought this would sell well so there so you it's go a brand name i never really aspirin was an originally way. yes and it actually it is still trademarked but it's violated constantly but there is someone who owns it. It's a problem with trademark law in the U.S. Or, I mean, one of the problems, and I'm, I'm sure other countries do this too, but if you don't defend it constantly, it eventually loses its teeth. Well, and if you want to, I am not going to get into the entire trademark history of the word aspirin because it is a long, convoluted story about patents and trademarks that crosses international waters and involves like, well, I'll get into this, involves like treaties because aspirin was made initially by the German company Bayer, So they had the patent, they had the trademark on the name Aspirin, and then they began selling it all over the world, and a lot of stuff went wrong with this process. And then it was sold, and it was sold back, and there's, it's, if you're, if you're interested in that kind of history, trademark law, and that kind of stuff, I would highly recommend reading the story of Aspirin. I'm not going to tell you all that, because I'm a doctor, but anyway, it was initially a powder when they sold it. They sold little packets of powder. Mm -hmm. But then they turned it into tablets in 1915. A lot easier. Yeah, a lot easier to take. And primarily it was marketed to doctors. They would just send the little packets so to doctors. Get a lot of headaches. No, they would say, because at the time it was actually um, really, it was considered unethical to market directly to consumers. Wouldn't it be nice, yeah, been nice. If, that still, if that still existed? But at the time you wouldn't have made a commercial for aspirin telling consumers to buy it you would send packets to a doctor and say hey i think you should give this to your patients it's great and then hopefully your doctor tries it or gives it to patients they get good reviews and then they start recommending it to patients as a result Uh, that was the goal so uh the the trademark like i said from the beginning was challenged like country by country almost from the like the initial introduction of aspirin because it was uh i mean it was a huge success it was a smash success People started taking it and it did something. And so many medications at this didn't. point in history didn't do anything yeah. other than secretly make you drunk or high. That would just be the slogan. Like, it does something. <laughs> That's Maybe it. Aspirin. It does something. And there were so many different illnesses that we couldn't really treat, but would cause things like fevers and aches and pains. And this would relieve those. Hallelujah. And everybody had pain and nobody knew what to take for it. Again, here you go. Here you go. A pill that actually fixes it. Uh, so World War One came along, created shortages of phenol, which was necessary in the production process of aspirin. It's not, as I mentioned, it's not the component of aspirin, but you you use it as you produce aspirin. Right. Uh, but it was also used in explosives. So oh, priorities. Yeah, exactly. This led to decreased amounts being shipped to Germany, which was very hard for Bayer because they needed it to make their aspirin and they're making lots of aspirin and trying to protect their trademark so they keep the aspirin flooding the markets uh so they needed more phenol to make the aspirin and obviously britain isn't going to send them any of course at this point so uh and they also didn't want um didn't want the u.s shipping their phenol 
to the UK because they were using it for explosives. Right. So they tried to find a way to get the phenol, but they didn't want to find a way to do it overtly because at the at this moment, the U.S. still hasn't entered the war. Okay. So they don't want to shift any more sen- sentiment against Germany than is already against Germany in the U.S. Okay. So this gives birth to the great phenol plot. This oh, is really what this is I'm, called. I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, until the U.S. entered World War One, they were remaining fairly neutral, but they were trading with the Allies to, like, show their support. Mm-hmm. Uh, the German ambassador wanted to try to undermine American industry secretly because they didn't want to hurt public opinion against the Germans. So th- what they started doing, and they needed the phenol. They desperately needed it to keep Barrow afloat and because of, you know, explosives. So Thomas Edison was one of the biggest producers of phenol at the time. Because he had a giant plant that he used to make phenol to make his phonograph records because it was essential in the phonograph record process. Okay. So he had tons of phenol in excess. So Germany created, uh, through the help of a German ambassador and an interior minister, they created a shell corporation in the U.S. to buy up all of the excess phenol from Thomas Edison and ship it back to Germany. They were buying like three tons of phenol a day and shipping it back to keep Bear in business and to keep it out of uh, the UK so that they couldn't use it for explosives. So this was all this secret plot that was orchestrated uh, that was only uncovered. And this is true because a briefcase with the details of the plot that was being carried around by this interior minister who was helping with this plot, he left it. He left his briefcase somewhere, forgot it. (laughs) And a Secret Service agent who was suspicious of him and was trailing him got the briefcase, cracked it open, found all of this information about the great phenol plot. The whole thing got published in an anti-German newspaper at the time, a, a newspaper in the U.S. that was pushing against Germany in the war. And even though none of this was illegal, it was really unpopular. Right. So obviously (laughs) as a result, this got picked up by the big media. As a result, Edison says, you know what? I don't think this looks good for me. I'm going to stop selling you phenol. And he starts giving his phenol to the U S military to use as explosives. And then the U S entered the war. Just when you think Thomas Edison can't suck anymore, he goes and sucks more. He sells (laughs) explosives to the Germans. What? But he killed puppies. That guy sucks so bad. (laughs) So as, uh, as part Ugh, of the, tell me, give me started on Thomas Edison. Uh, well, more will happen with the the patent and the trademark on aspirin. The Treaty of Versailles actually included a provision that Bayer had to give up the trademark on aspirin, actually as well as heroin. Mm. Aspirin and heroin were both released as a result as one small provision in the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and that same year, aspirin became available over the counter. And once it was available over the counter, everybody was buying it. When you didn't have to get it from your doctor, you already knew it worked. And with the end of the war and phenol becoming more available and more aspirin, and now everybody's making it, everybody's taking it. Uh, The Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 really increased sales of aspirin because people were sick. They felt terrible. Unfortunately, a lot of people were dying. You didn't really know what to do about it. So you give them aspirin and at least it made people feel better. It lowered their fever. It helped with the aches and pains. And it was seen as kind of a miracle drug, even though it wasn't actually curing Mm -hmm. the flu. Um, 
and this combined with the the markets being flooded with copycat generic brands at this time and variations on the name aspirin really spread its use. So like in Australia, there was Aspro, which was huge. Aspro. Aspro and sold everywhere. And then there were just formulations in the U.S. that were called things like Burton's aspirin or Malloy's aspirin which were just aspirin. There was Cal aspirin. There was St. Joseph aspirin. There were things like Cafaspirin. Cafaspirin? Which is caffeine and aspirin. Oh, that sounds effective, though. Anison. A lot of people have heard of Anison. Anison sounds familiar. That was caffeine and aspirin. There were actually many, many other medications that came out under the name Anison eventually, but initially it was caffeine and aspirin. Um, that was a hugely popular one. Um, Alka-Seltzer was initially aspirin and sodium bicarbonate. Okay. It's not anymore, right? No, there's other Alka-Seltzers. It's the same thing. Alka-Seltzer has different, you know, products under mm-hmm. Alka-Seltzer. Same thing with Anison. Anison was just aspirin and caffeine, and then it grew to a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Excedrin's aspirin and caffeine too, right? Yeah. Although I think aspirin. Excedrin has other formulation. Like there's other, pro- you know yeah. how like Tylenol has a million different products? I think it's the same idea. But yes, yes. Uh, now, all of this created like this aspirin fervor. Fever. Fervor. <laughs> Fever too. It's a yeah. joke because aspirin oh, it's is like, a fever. Okay, gotcha. It's antipyretic. I love it. I love it. I'm crazy anyway. about that. Anyway, and uh, the only thing that dampened it in the 50s and the 60s, a couple drugs came on the market. First of all, acetaminophen, which you probably know as Tylenol, oh, huge, uh, was introduced, and then shortly thereafter, ibuprofen was introduced, and both of these cut into aspirin sales majorly because. Some people found them to work better, and for a variety of reasons, sometimes they might have been safer, especially Tylenol, for various patients. Um, The other thing that really uh, put a damper on aspirin sales was Rye syndrome. Rye syndrome, uh, did you ever hear, don't take aspirin if you have chicken pox? Have you ever heard that? Uh -uh. A lot of people may have kind of, that they knew that, but they didn't know why they knew that. In the 80s, this rare complication was found in children who were given aspirin while they were recovering from certain viral illnesses. Chickenpox is the one that gets the most press, but really it was just any kind of viral illness. They had a fever, they felt bad, they were given an aspirin, and they developed this inflammation of the brain, inflammation of the liver, very serious illness that sometimes could have been fatal. Um, Just a small number of children, but enough that there grew this concern, why is there this reaction in kids who get aspirin with certain viruses? We don't know, but... Let's the point was, be careful. don't give aspirin to kids, huh. was what grew out of this concern. Kids, period, or kids with chicken pox? Don't give aspirin to kids grew oh. out of this. Okay. Unless for a very specific reason, your doctor has told you to give your kid aspirin, don't give your kid aspirin. Okay. There's just a good rule of thumb. Um, in 1953, Dr. Lawrence Craven noticed that, and he was like a primary Maybe care doctor. The, <laughs> named after a horror movie villain. <laughs> My name is Dr. Lawrence Craven. He noticed something more Welcome useful. To my island. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of creepy how all this plays out, but it's very useful. He noticed that patients in his practice who chewed aspergum, which is a gum that has aspirin in it. Right. Yeah, if you can imagine that existed, a gum with aspirin. Uh, so people who chewed aspergum, which had about 227 milligrams of aspirin, mm-hmm. which should put in like context, like a baby aspirin has 81 milligrams, the little little baby aspirins. Mm-hmm. And then like the big aspirins have 325. So like a decent amount of aspirin is yeah. in there. So 227 milligrams of aspirin. The patients who chewed this bled a lot more after they got their tonsils out than patients who didn't. Mm-hmm. This was the first. You dropped a lot of delicious blood. 
What a shame. This led to a lot of studies being done on why does aspirin maybe thin your blood? And they found that it was antithrombotic, meaning maybe prevented clotting. And from this came studies that showed aspirin could reduce your risk of heart attack or stroke. Um, which is the biggest breakthrough for aspirin and why it still, even though I might tell you not to take it for a headache, it still is one of the most recommended medications for patients and probably most important for certain patients to take. Hmm. So um, even now, there are about there are between 700 and 1,000 studies done on aspirin every year to try to figure out all the things it can do. Wow. It's pretty... I remember seeing ads like you should take one of these if you're having a heart attack and yes. thinking like, nice try, guys. It's no, you should. A, it's just a headache pill. It's the first thing we do. If someone comes in and we think they're having a heart attack or stroke, we give them an aspirin. Um, aspirin, by the way, I just did a quick search. Uh, wasn't discontinued until 2006. It's incredible. I remember having it. I had it when I was Really? A yeah. See, it's, uh, I, I will say, it's, I think it's more well-known now that generally we don't give kids aspirin. Yeah. Like I said, unless there's a very specific reason that your kid has some condition that we have said, take an aspirin, generally do not give children aspirin, period. Under 19, I think, is the recommendation. Yikes. Wow, that's serious stuff. Uh, so it is used in the prevention of heart attack and stroke. It does work for, for pain and fever and those kinds of things. But because it is this blood thinner, because it does this other thing... It may not always be the best choice for that. Um, acetaminophen does not do that. So for some patients, it may be safer. If you're on certain medications or if you have other conditions, um, if you're already on kind of blood thinners and that kind of thing, aspirin could be very dangerous for you. Um, it can cause things like bleeding ulcers, as can things like ibuprofen. So if you have a tendency for bleeding or that kind of thing, again, there's a lot of reasons why you might not just want to willy-nilly take an aspirin. So... It's like I say, with everything, you should talk to your doctor. But um, they've even found some studies that have correlated aspirin use with a reduction in cancer risk. Mm. I can't say that it prevents cancer yet, but they found some studies that are intriguing. Wow. So aspirin does do a lot of things. Um, one thing I want to tell you not to do is please don't make a paste out of it and put it on your body. Uh, that's a thing? <laughs> that is a thing that we see periodically. Um, I think it's like an old folk remedy. And you crush up aspirin and kind of turn it into a paste and put it wherever you're hurting. Or like if you have a fever or something, they'll just put it on like the chest area. That seems like a, a lot it, of... Yeah. It's bad. You'll absorb that. You do absorb that. Please don't do that. That's just something, generally speaking, we, we always recommend against. So just just to be aware, like there are still Alka-Seltzers out there. If you've heard of um, Goody Powder... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People around here love to take goody powder for headaches <laughs> that has aspirin in it. Think about that. Um, it's the same thing as BC powder. There's a lot of those like things I've mentioned, like Buffex and Bufferin. And I mean, they're at, at, like we've talked about the, the gum that isn't around anymore. Thank goodness. Um, but there are tons of different meds out there that contain aspirin that you may not be aware of. So I would be very careful in general with over-the-counter pain relievers. Um, especially if you have a lot of complicated medical conditions or if you are on a lot of other medications or just, you know, it never hurts. Ask your doctor, hey, which of these is probably the best thing for me to take if I have a headache or if I'm hurting or whatever? It's probably not aspirin. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, folks, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Um, uh, hey, this is not really related to anything we're doing, but um, I, we've uh, uh, it's been really terrible to see the devastation in Puerto Rico uh, and the area over the past uh, couple of weeks. 
Um, if there's something that if you feel so compelled to help, uh, you can do like us and go uh, follow the lead of our friend Lynn Manuel Miranda, who uh, is pointing people towards HispanicFederation.org forward slash donate. So uh, if you if you have a few bucks to spare, it's a very worthy cause and we would highly recommend it. So uh, go do that if you are so inclined. Uh, thanks you to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. It makes sense because our show is about medicine. Think about it. You just got it, didn't you? First time? That's okay. Habits to everybody. And thank uh, you to the Maximum Fun Network. Oh, yeah. They've got a, great, a lot of great podcasts you should go enjoy right now. And uh, thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate your time here with us. And we hope you've enjoyed yourself and learned a little something. Uh, but that is all the time that we have for this week. So... Until next week, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported. There is a new series of Star Trek coming out, and MaximumFun.org has submitted to our blackmail and agreed to host a new show on the network. We're calling it The Greatest Discovery. We've got photographs. We have recordings. (laughs) We have web browser history on everyone at Maximum Fun. Those are the things that have allowed us to have a second Star Trek show on Maximum Fun. There's no way they're happy about this, but we will be recapping every episode of Star Trek Discovery, all 15 of them as they come out over the fall and winter. And uh, we hope you'll join us by going to MaximumFun.org and looking for The Greatest Discovery or looking for it wherever you download podcasts.